If you were Flemish Franciscan missionary William of Rubric, you didn't much like what your king, King Louis IX of France, had asked you to do. See, you and the king were on the losing end of the Seventh Crusade, except you didn't know it yet. Although Louis was getting suspicious. In fact, it was probably because he suspected he was losing that you, William of Rubric, were being asked to do what you didn't like which was to go into the foreign land of Turkey and try to convert the foreign Tartars to Christianity. And you didn't much like foreigners, or foreign places, or foreign things. The whole suite of things to which the word foreign could be attached went pretty much against your grain in every possible way. It would have been hard for the king to have picked anyone less suitable but at least you were Christian, which, as far as the king was concerned, was the only pertinent qualification. Naturally, once you had converted all the foreign heathens to Christianity, the next step would be to get them to weigh in on the king's side in this little Seventh Crusade thing, which, as we mentioned, Louis was beginning to suspect he was about to lose. It wouldn't work, of course. Not only because you are William of Rubric and you turn your nose up at foreign things, which is a bad position to try to preach the good news from, but also because King Louis sent you on a two-year trip to help out in a war he would lose in about another eight months. See, the king was right to be suspicious. Still, off you go to convert as many Turks as you can, which, spoiler alert, turns out to be about six. Along the way, you get to see all the wonderful sights, which you don't like, meet lots of different people whom you also don't like, and very nearly manage to starve to death, which you really, really disapprove of in a fairly extreme way. Mind you, you're about ten years ahead of the Polo Brothers' first little excursion out this way, and no one has really bothered to write anything down prior to your travels about the area, so it's not entirely your fault that you are unprepared for a journey without any real idea what to expect. You'll just have to keep track of it yourself so that later on, someone who does like foreign things can make the journey instead. Eventually, of course, you find yourself among the Mongols, as everyone traveling east at the time eventually does. And you really, really super don't like them at all, even a little. To your eye, they're rowdy, disorganized, dirty, heathen, awful, dangerous, terrible, evil foreigners of the most foreign type. Even though they do rule over various bits of what is and was the largest empire to date, by now, in 1253, the Great Mongol Empire has begun to fracture a little. And so you find yourself in the lands ruled by Sartok Khan, who sends you on to his father Batu Khan, who no more wants to be converted to Christianity than his son did, and so sends you on to the Khan of Khans, Monka Khan, in the Mongol capital of Karakorum deep in the heart of Mongolia. And you're not very impressed with this foreign capital, being, as it is, foreign. In the book you're writing about your travels, you make sure to mention how Karakorum doesn't hold a candle to the places you know back home around Paris. How its people are all the things you've established that all foreign people are, unwashed, uncivil, etc. And that there's not one redeeming feature about any of it. Well, almost. Okay, yes, 
It is very cosmopolitan, but only because the very foreign Mongols have taken to finding, capturing, and keeping skilled artisans and other useful people from other countries they happen to raid with an eye toward improving their own lands, which is why you, William of Rubric, get to meet Hungarians, Greeks, Armenians, and Georgians. You come across a Christian from Damascus, a woman from the northeast of France captured on a business trip, Basil, the son of an Englishman, and most impressively of all, a fellow Parisian named Guillaume Boucher, or William Boucher. And Boucher has made the one thing in all the Mongol Empire that has really genuinely impressed you. It's a drinking fountain. See, Boucher is a metalsmith, and he has made all sorts of things for the Khan and his capital city. There are fancy metal altars and useful bits of kit for making communion wafers and private little mobile prayer houses and all sorts of other decorative and useful things, but the real eye-catcher, as far as you are concerned, is that drinking fountain. And what a fountain it is. According to you, or rather, William of Rubric, at the entrance to this palace, seeing it would have been unseemly to put skins of milk and other drinks there, Master William of Paris has made for him a large silver tree, at the foot of which are four silver lions, each having a pipe and all belching forth white mare's milk. Inside the trunk, four pipes lead up to the top of the tree, and the ends of the pipes are bent downwards, and over each of them is a gilded serpent, the tail of which twines round the trunk of the tree. One of these pipes pours out wine, another caracosmos, or erig, that is the refined milk of mares, another bowl, which is a honey drink, and another rice mead, which is called teratina. Each of these has its silver basin ready to receive it at the foot of the tree between the other four pipes. At the very top, he fashioned an angel holding a trumpet. Underneath the tree, he made a crypt in which a man can be secreted, and a pipe goes up to the angel through the middle of the heart of the tree. At first, he had made bellows, but they did not give enough wind. Outside the palace, there is a chamber in which the drinks are stored, and servants stand there ready to pour them out when they hear the angel sounding the trumpet. The tree has branches, leaves, and fruit of silver, and so, when the drinks are getting low, the chief butler calls out to the angel to sound his trumpet. Then, hearing this, the man who is hidden in the crypt blows the pipe going up to the angel with all his strength, and the angel, placing the trumpet to his mouth, sounds it very loudly. When the servants in the chamber hear this, each one of them pours out his drink into its proper pipe and the pipes pour them out from above and below into the basins prepared for this, and then the cupbearers draw the drinks and carry them round the palace to the men and women. Well, you can see why he was impressed. But more importantly, if you look closely at the silver tree of Karakorum, you can see how the Silk Road brought so much more than silk and horses to the world. And if you look closer still, you can see how the Silk Road came to an end. Or did it? This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. One of the most important things to understand about the Silk Road was not that it allowed people to trade silk for horses, 
nor that Marco Polo wrote about it and made it famous. While these were significant markers in the history of the Silk Road, they weren't the only things going on. Marco Polo didn't have his story written down and then suddenly everyone in the world heard about the Silk Road when they read it. People knew about the Silk Road and used it to great effect for hundreds of years before he wrote about it. Silk wasn't the only thing traded along the route, nor were horses the only thing being traded for. They were just the impetus that finally caused the eastern bits of the route to be connected up to the western bits. And it wasn't silk itself that gave China such power along the routes. It was their control of the domestication of one specific kind of silkworm that enabled them to produce more and finer silk than anyone else and therefore leverage it into wealth and power. Once someone else learned how to do it, all that disappeared for them. The process was more important than the product. At best, these are just road signs pointing out how the Silk Road developed. They're useful to a point, but they aren't by any means the whole thing. If you want to understand more about what the Silk Road really did and how it did it, the Silver Tree of Karakoram is an excellent place to start. First, consider what Karakoram, as the seat of the Mongol Empire, had become. Genghis Khan gathered his troops for a battle against the Khwarezm Empire around 1218 CE. At the time, the Khwarezm had inherited a large portion of the former Persian Empire and were confident enough of themselves to ignore Genghis's overtures of peace by executing the entirety of a trade delegation sent by the Khan on the grounds that they might be spies scouting the place out for a possible war. When Genghis asked them to make reparations for the loss of goods and men, the local Shah refused, and the war they thought they'd stopped by killing the spies was instead brought right home to them when Genghis pulled into town with about 200,000 troops. By the time Genghis and his men reached the capital of Samarkand, the Shah was already on the run to the Caspian Sea, where he died some weeks later. A complicated series of events then unfolded, which basically meant the Shah's son went on the run to India, didn't quite get there before the Mongols caught up, was denied asylum in India, snuck back home and tried to get a kingdom back together, but never quite managed to pull it off before the Mongols caught up with him again. Basically, the entire Khwarezm Empire fell and was conquered because someone was afraid they might fall and be conquered. The amount of land this gave the Mongols meant that by the time William of Rubric arrives to meet Manka Khan in the capital Karakoram, the world's largest contiguous empire ever is being run from exactly one place. The whole of the empire stretches from the Pacific Ocean in the east, including much of China, many of the southern and western bits of Russia, all of Eurasia, all the way back to the Black Sea and all the way to Poland and Finland. And this as you might be aware, is quite the mix of different cultures. And not just cultures, but also religions. All of the world's major ones, in fact. Philosophies, governments, craftsmen, art, architecture, and pretty much everything else. Fortunately, the Mongols were, once a people had been conquered and subjugated, of course, famously tolerant of other people's lifestyles. Which is, we suppose, accurate enough. Sure, a lot of the rules and regulations required to be a proper Jew or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or Christian were more or less made extremely difficult to observe properly, but you were allowed to believe what you liked without being put to death, which amounts to much the same thing. Soon, the Mongol Empire under Manka Khan 
was sporting Buddhist monasteries alongside Christian churches, both right next door to mosques in the capital. So much culture and religion and philosophy that had never really mixed before finally began mixing in the Mongol capital. Soon, buildings were being made in various architectural styles, from Persian to Chinese to European, and the people themselves were beginning to mingle, unconquered and unhindered, in and around the capital from all over the world. And this is the first of our lessons from the Silver Tree Fountain. See, all those drinks William mentioned coming out of the fountain had significance. They weren't just chosen by random happenstance. You may have noticed that those drinks were all alcoholic. Well, except for the vast tubs of white mare's milk at the foot of the tree, those were mostly for the Mongols themselves. The north-facing serpent looked towards present-day Mongolia and Russia and gave out fermented horse milk, or Eric. The south-facing serpent looked to the Middle East and put out wine, while the western serpent cast its gaze on Europe and produced mead made from honey, and the eastern one looked over China and gave rice wine. No matter where you were from, the Silver Tree Fountain seemed to say, you are welcome here and can relax. Not only that, but the Silver Tree was also rife with religious symbolism that was recognizable to the various religions of the empire. There were serpents and fruit topped by an angel, which one could interpret as a semblance of the Tree of Knowledge. The four liquids might be seen to represent the four rivers of Eden. And lions were significant not only in Christian beliefs, but also to Jews and Muslims. And don't forget, the whole tree was built and designed in the Mongol Empire by a French goldsmith. You could not ask for a better symbol of the influx of new culture and ideas through and along the Silk Road than that which was on display in the Mongol capital. This is what the Silk Road really did. It spread ideas, culture, and religions into new lands where they had never been before. Simply by virtue of existing and allowing people to practice commerce along the routes that made up the Silk Road, new thoughts and ways of thinking came along for the ride. You might meet a merchant in Venice who had traded with one in Istanbul, who had met a nomad from Kabul, who'd taken a load of wool from a trader in Texilla, who'd seen a little golden statue offered by a man in Khotan, who'd had it from a missionary on his way to Langzhou, who would eventually meet the Khan in Beijing. In this way, you would learn a little something about everyone in the chain, and while individually it might not be a lot of information passing, the overall effect over hundreds of years and a hundred thousand interactions would be significant, and those interactions happened all along the chain. But it wasn't just little things that moved along the chain. Big things did as well. Big ideas, like science and art. Astronomy traveled outwards from the Middle East, while Eastern and Western art influenced each other. Paper traveled from the East into the West, and boy, the West sure did have a lot of things that needed a whole new medium to be written down on. And then these new things, these books and scrolls, would travel back along the routes and into the East, carrying new knowledge not yet known, where sultans, shahs, khans, and emperors, all hungry for that knowledge, would collect it up and store it. New mathematics and numbers came up from India and the Middle East and made their way West, and new ways of keeping track of and working with those numbers annoyed all the school children of Europe for years to come. The ideas and knowledge moved in every direction along the routes and found their way to nearly everyone involved in the Silk Road. And this free-flowing exchange of ideas 
was without any doubt the single most important import and export for every country, city, and clan of nomads along the way. It spread everywhere, just as rapidly as commerce could carry it. But, as we said, look more closely at the Silver Tree Fountain, and you can see why the original Silk Road eventually went away. Most of the Silk Road was, by this time, under the influence of the Mongol Empire. Which was fine, as long as the Mongol Empire was a stable enterprise with a long future ahead of it. Sadly, when William of Rubric came along, it was on its last legs. Manka Khan would continue to expand the Mongol Empire in small ways over the next few years, but in 1259, while on campaign against the Chinese whose empire he sought to control the whole of, Manka dies during an epidemic among the Mongol armies. This threw the Mongol Empire into a tailspin across their lands. Suddenly, they start losing battles at the edges of the empire as various forces ally against them just long enough to ensure their defeat. Then, in the confusion caused by the loss of their great Khan, the Mongols start fighting among themselves over which of Manka's brothers, Kublai or Arakbok, should rule the empire. Kublai wins that battle eventually but then faces a series of challenges from other relatives seeking to rule instead. Marco and the Polos sneak through, but soon the entire Mongolian Empire is fractured and falling apart with brother fighting brother and provinces of the empire outright rebelling. As a result of all the infighting, the cultural and economic exchanges taking place along the Silk Road come to a halt as various factions in control of different sections of the road begin to exert territorial control over it it becomes dangerous to try to transport goods along the road, and if goods won't travel, neither will people. And then two of the people who were watched over by the snakes on the Silver Tree Fountain show why the fountain was, in part, pointed at them. The fountain exists in no small part as a reminder to the Khan to keep an eye on all the parts of his realm, no matter how distant they seem, or how secure. The Russians and the Chinese notice that in their weakened state, the Mongols look a lot easier to beat, and between the two of them, they manage to take, over the course of a few years, the Mongol capital, effectively cutting off Mongolian access to China. Now, the goods that had traditionally come by the Silk Road through Eurasia and into Europe were looking for ways west that didn't involve having to go through increasingly dangerous territory which is about the time sailing and shipping really came into their own for the transportation of goods over long distances. Go back to our episode called Oars to Steam for more, but mainly it was cheaper and safer to load your goods into a boat in a Chinese port and sail the long way around to European ports than it was to risk the overland route. And so, as people shifted to sea transport, there was less and less commerce and less and less exchange over the Silk Road. And then, too, the plague came. See our episode. And more than a few scholars are now of the opinion that it spread along the Silk Road just like everything else had, and that all these people mixing and mingling together was what enabled the plague to spread so rapidly and so readily. It wasn't initially spread only by port-to-port -port contact via ships as much as it was spread in the mix and jumble of commerce along the routes. Add all these factors up, the difficulty and danger of traversing the routes, the fall of the Mongol capital and crumbling of the empire, the subsequent restriction of Chinese trade, the advent of really serious transport by sea, and the scourge of the plague, 
and the Silk Road simply fell into disuse and was never restored. By the end of the 15th century, the Silk Road was done, never to be used again. Except, well, except for the fact that there had already been a lot of maritime routes running off the Silk Road for centuries, linking China to ports in the Indian Ocean, the East African coast, and through the Persian Gulf into the Mediterranean. Really, the new competition from European shipping wasn't anything new. In fact, it worked alongside the overland routes to help move goods along. China was still linked by these sea routes to parts west. The flow of ideas, particularly those of a religious nature, continued to be exchanged throughout the 16th, 17th, and even the 18th century in all the same places the Silk Road had exchanged them previously. Eurasia was still visited by various missionaries and proselytizers, for a variety of religions, with Islam making inroads into portions of Tibet and China. So even as late as the 1700s, the Silk Road was still providing the means for new thoughts and new ways of belief to spread. And people were still conducting overland trade in goods along portions of the Silk Road, even though it was supposedly dead by 1500. Alliances and agreements between factions of Mongol and Chinese rulers still allowed free trade and safe passage over portions of the route long after its supposed demise. One Englishman, Anthony Jenkinson, while in Bukhara, Uzbekistan in 1558, noted that while caravans from China had been interrupted for three years, when the way was open and passage secure, they still managed to return with all manner of goods including musk, satin, rhubarb, and many other things. Jesuits were able to travel from Kabul to western China by joining a merchant caravan in 1603, and the Ming Dynasty was still receiving missions from Western princes in Beijing as late as the 1640s. Eventually, though, everything changes. The efforts of both Russia and China would see a restriction and gradual fading of the nomadic tribes that helped make the Silk Road work. The coming of the internal combustion engine would mean that animal power was less and less necessary for traversing the routes. The vehicles powered by those engines didn't need to stop as frequently or for as long so small trading outposts would fall into disuse as they were bypassed for larger markets. And the routes themselves would shift and change as new markets were found elsewhere as Russia opened up and began trading to meet its insatiable demand for more goods, fueled by Russian fur and once again Eurasian horses. And remember the word we used way back at the beginning of this month, globalization? It's something we concern ourselves with today. The free trade of goods, ideas, and capital in an increasingly integrated global economy and the effects of it on the national identities of independent nations. Especially now that there's this internet thing. The Silk Road was where it all began, really. And as goods, ideas, religions, money, technology, science, knowledge, and more continue to move freely between nations both in physical form and over the wires of the internet, you can't really call the Silk Road dead. It just looks a bit different, and is a lot bigger than it used to be. Thanks for listening to this month's series on the Silk Road. We hope you enjoyed it. We've started a YouTube channel, the link to which will be in the show notes. If you find it easier to access YouTube in some places, go ahead and subscribe. We're currently uploading episodes in chronological order a few times a week. 
We might even get caught up sometime before next year. Who knows? Head over and take a look at it. Also, thanks to longtime listener and friend of the show, Leslie, we've had a grand old time subject tagging most of our episodes. And properly this time. Now, when you go to our website at gmwordoftheweek.com, episodes will try to give you relevant recommendations to other episodes you might find enjoyable. There's still some work to do, so you'll probably see a lot of recommendations for the spider episode, but that's why they call it a web of knowledge. We presume. Give it a look and tell us what you think. By a curious coincidence, gmwordoftheweek.com is also where you can go to find out how to support the show on Patreon, should you be so inclined. And we hope you are so inclined, so that you, along with all our other patrons, can be properly thanked at the end of the show for your continued support. Thanks, King. You're the best. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian, I'll take the mead branch, Casey. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. The benefits and consequences of globalization have a great deal to do with whether we're intelligent and thoughtful about how we approach globalization, or whether we're blindly accepting or blindly resistant. Thank you.